Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 18, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name, again, is Rick. I'm author of Spiritual Grit, the book that was released last year, a couple years before The Jesus-Centered Life, and I'm editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible. And today, today is our fourth episode in a new series we're calling Fully Human. Now, you can back up and catch this series from the beginning if you miss them, but I think we're going to do probably, oh, at least five. We'll do another one next week and maybe six if I have a good idea for one, so we'll just have to wait and see. But we know that the idea here that this series of fully human means that we know that Jesus is described as both fully God and fully human, and that's a theological way of understanding him, that he's both and 100% at the same time, but in our functional way of thinking, we usually overweight the way we see Jesus to see him primarily as God and not see him through the lens of what it means to be human. And the truth is, Jesus came to model what it is to be human. He came to redeem what it is to be human. And so that's why we're kind of leaning into this aspect of who he is to try to discover what it looks like to be a fully alive human being, the best way to do that is to pay better attention to Jesus. So we're using the filter he gave us for love. Um, he said that the kind of love relationship that I'm longing for with you is one in which you and I love with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We read this and we recognize that this is the standard for love, and it was pretty well known during Jesus' time. Jewish uh, leaders and teachers and Pharisees all knew that this was the, the standard for love, but we often don't think about it from the other side, that, that Jesus is also saying, and this is the way I love you. I love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength as well. So we're, we're taking these four words, and we're kind of using them like a, a lens to look at what it means to be fully human. And so Today, we're going to consider what all our strength means. We're going to look through that lens, and we're going to look at what it means to stand. One of the most common commands and encouragements and inspirations that we see from Jesus and throughout the Bible is to stand in the midst of things, and to stand is to, is to access your strength. Uh, to stand is so important in life because there's so much that is attempting to topple us. And maybe you're in a place right now where you feel like you're being toppled, or there's pressure on you to be toppled, and you need the strength to stand. And so what we're going to do today is explore strength. And this comes close to home for me, especially recently, because I spent about a year and a half researching and writing Spiritual Grit, uh, the book that came out last year. And that book is all about grit or strength, and where does strength come from? And for me, it was a very personal exploration because my journey was a typical journey up until about 15 or 20 years ago, raised in the church, 
uh, had a profound experience of transformation and redemption with Jesus, that especially in college, and which led to a pursuit of a life, a working life, where I I've basically worked in a church or for a Christian organization my entire my entire 35 years of working, and so all of this flooded into what I would say was a very conventional Christian life, and I was a speaker and a writer, and I wrote about conventional Christian things. And along the way, I started to have some deep doubts about the path, the template that had been given to me to live a Christian life, and a lot of my doubt came from self-doubt, to be honest. All of the things that required my own strength to achieve the the Christian life that I was being told I needed to live. If I was being honest, and I was kind of driven into honesty, really, but if I was being honest, I'd have to admit that there were so many things I just was terrible at, I couldn't do, that my strength wasn't enough. And my transformation in life came in defeat. (laughs) The defeat of my own strength is where the real transformation happened in my life. It's when I turned more honestly and more authentically in a more raw way to Jesus and began to to uh, trust him more than I trusted myself and it's funny when I look back on this that it's un- and it's funny and also sad that the church in many ways trains us to rely upon our own strength the messages that we get from church are often self-strengthening messages cloaked in religious language and so at least for me, those those promises and those urgings uh, became more and more empty to me as my heart filled up with the heart of Jesus. I shifted my attention from trying harder to be better to attaching myself more deeply to Jesus. So strength in the way it's threaded into spiritual grit is that, yes, we have a shallow bucket of, of strength that is different for each person, but there's not a single person living who hasn't exceeded the demand for the, their small bucket of strength. Every single person has been in a place at least once, and likely thousands of times, when they're in over their head, where you need more strength than you have, and then where do you look for for that strength? What, where do you go to? And as human beings, we often go to the worst possible places to get the sense of more strength. So you could even say that some of the school shooting crisis that is plaguing our country right now, and another one happened, you know, 10 minutes away from where I live just this week, there is something about the conveyance of weapons that gives you sort of a false sense of strength, and there's a draw to using a weapon, to using it in a violent way that gives you a bastardized view of your own strength. So all of us are longing to feel stronger than we are, but we often look to places that uh, are destructive to get that sense of strength. So, so let's explore what it looks like to live in strength, to love in strength, because this is what Jesus is asking us to do, to love with all of our strength. Well, what is strength? There's no one answer for that because it's such a multifaceted thing. So maybe a good place to start is, well, what does weakness mean? Uh, that's the other side of strength. What does weakness mean? And you can look at that in a a variety of ways, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Uh, We've all felt weakness in those, you know, four areas. Uh, And actually, when we're tired or weak in one area, it affects all the other areas. So 
It's often true for me because I lead people through uh, relational, deepening experiences with Jesus all the time. But if I come into that place where I'm leading and I'm tired, I know it has a profound impact on the way that I engage people. So, for instance, every Tuesday night when I have about 20 young people in my home, and I know for the next two and a half hours I'm going to be leading them through this very intentional, sometimes intense, and very focused and engaging and highly conversational experience where I'm awake and alert to them and to the Spirit of Jesus at the same time, I sit in my room and I close the door before everyone starts to arrive just so I can be alone and quiet for a minute. And I very often cry (laughs) before the evening starts. And the reason I am is because I'm so aware of how weak I really feel. And in that sense, the weakness leads me to my strength. The weakness leads me to the, the reality that I am dependent upon Jesus for everything. And I'm viscerally aware of that before I move into something that is as demanding as what I do on Tuesday nights. And so weakness, the function of weakness, is its best function is to lead us to our true source of strength. It's sort of like the Samaritan woman at the well that we've talked about so often on this podcast. She starts out wanting water from the well. She thinks what Jesus is promising to get her is some kind of deep drink of water from the well, and She's like, but you don't have a bucket, so how are you going to get it? And she doesn't realize that what he's really offering is something much deeper and more fulfilling and more thirst-satiating than just dipping your bucket into the well outside of Sicker. He's offering her himself living water. The person standing in front of him, he's offering himself to her as her water. And so she wants—you could translate this metaphorically to—she wants the strength that she knows about and Jesus is offering her the strength she doesn't know about, the strength of his very presence. So weakness in any of these areas, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, even when I'm working out, for instance, there's uh, certain fitness classes that I take that are very demanding, and I find there's some days when I just don't have the emotional strength to go to that class, because even though you're working out physically, physical work requires emotional strength as well. Uh, if you're emotionally weak, then you can't finish the workout. I remember one time I was running with my daughter Lucy when she was home from school, and she's a runner, and so I, I knew ahead of time I'd probably have to go at least slower than she goes. But I usually expect when I run with her to run the whole length of whatever length we're running. But I remember this one particular day, it was in late fall, and in, on a two-mile run I had to stop five times. And I kept asking myself, why? I don't understand this. I've run two miles so many times. Why do I literally feel like I can't keep going? And I had to recognize the reason I couldn't keep going is because emotionally I was depleted. So your emotions matter. Your mindset matters. The place you are spiritually matters. If you're in a bad place spiritually, you're probably guaranteed to be in a bad place emotionally as well. So all these things are interconnected. So the purpose of Sabbath, by the way, is not really simply the cessation of work, which is how we look at it. Like, we think about Sabbath, and we don't—I don't know anyone who really, quote-unquote, keeps the Sabbath in a sort of orthodox way, but if, if we were going to, our idea of that is Sabbath means that you don't do any work that, that day, whatever that means. But actually, I think the way that Jesus describes Sabbath is not— 
the cessation of work, but what are we doing for our rest rather than what are we cutting out to rest? And what does rest really mean in the first place? I think uh, Sabbath is really the active pursuit of rest, and rest is not no activity, although it could be, but Sabbath can take many forms. And I've already mentioned, for me, one of my forms of Sabbath—this is going to sound funny, but one of my forms of Sabbath is tears. Uh, I was on a riding retreat for about four days, from Saturday to Tuesday this week, and I go to this monastery near Snowmass, which is a, a Trappist monastery, so the monks there keep the silence, and I stay in a—they have a, an array of retreat options there. You can stay in a little hermitage, a little stone uh, kind of cottage— they have about eight of those, and then they have a retreat house where you can stay in one of their retreat house rooms, and it's about a mile away from the, the monastery, which sounds like a lot, but you're sitting on a hill overlooking a beautiful valley, and the monastery sits at the back of this range of mountains, so it doesn't feel like a mile away, but it's totally silent. There's no Wi-Fi, there's no cell service, it's, it's completely quiet in this place, and I do this rather often. I go there sometimes just for retreats, but I've written um, all of my books in the last decade have been written at this place because it's such a fantastic environment to write. And there's no distraction whatsoever. Um, but one thing that always happens when I go on a retreat like this is about 24 hours into the retreat, I have slowed down enough and my mind has slowed down enough to get to this place where almost I have a mental, emotional, spiritual cleanse happening, where all of the, the anxieties and fears and heartbreaks and disappointments that have sort of gathered or collected in my soul just surface and sort of bubble over my soul and start to come out, and I just cry. It's funny, I was thinking this last time, I, it comes unannounced, I don't see it coming, and it just sort of boils over in me. And it's such a cleansing thing. It is a form of rest for me to let all of that pressure out, and it comes out in the form of tears. And so maybe your Sabbath rest activity is, is like that. It can come in lots of different ways, but the purpose here, the, the idea that we're, I'm getting at here is the tension between weakness and strength. I have to say, when I've had this experience of weakness, where I'm letting out all that's in me, I feel stronger on the other side of it. I feel more clarified in my soul and my mind and my spirit. The weakness leads to strength very often. And so talking about strength and how we come to it and what it looks like to love with all of our strength is kind of a mystery. It's kind of not what you would expect. It's not a linear path into strength. And my old friend Bob Krulish always used to tell a little parable that I loved. Um, he said... Um, our life, from our perspective, is like a mouse and an elephant on a rope bridge in the Amazon jungle, where they're both the mouse and the elephant are walking down across this uh, rope bridge, and it's swaying as they walk, and they stop in the middle of the bridge, and the bridge starts to bounce up and down. And it's because of the elephant's weight that the bridge is bouncing up and down but the mouse thinks that he's the one that has caused the bouncing bridge. And the mouse says, look what I can do, look what I can do. All the while, the elephant knowing, yeah, it's, it's my weight on the bridge that's causing that. And I love that little parable because that's us. When we think about 
exercising our strength in the areas of life that we need to exercise it, we often think of the movement that's necessary as something that we do when actually it's the elephant standing next to us on the bridge that is moving those things. And there are some things that are so big and so daunting that no amount of mouse power is going to, to do anything about it. I personally think those are the best places to be when you have a raw reckoning of your own strength, relative strength to everything else. So I thought what would be interesting is to start off before we dive into how Jesus modeled strength and how he helped others to grow in their strength, helped others to love with all their strength. I thought it'd be good to start off with something sort of classic from something Paul wrote in uh, Ephesians. This is, of course, from Ephesians 6, the whole section that's titled The Whole Armor of God. So I'm going to read this little section, and then we're going to go back and pluck out some things that I'm guessing you never saw before in this. And I want you to think about this through this filter of strength and weakness that we've been talking about already. I'll go ahead and read this, and we'll come back to it. So a final word, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you'll still be standing firm. Stand your ground putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. And we read this in the church, and we often translate this into... Um, cute little metaphoric illustrations of each part of the armor that we're supposed to put on. and But I don't know anyone who really, on an everyday basis, says, okay, I'm putting my armor on now. Sometimes we use this in when we pray. Uh, we use this kind of language when we pray. But this, I think the best way to look at what Paul is saying here is almost like if you're in the middle of a firefight in a war, and you're in a trench, and your commander crawls over to you, and you're all afraid beyond belief because you don't know what's about to happen, and you know the thing that you're about to do is going to require courage that you don't even know if you have. And your commanding officer crawls over to you, and the thing that he whispers to all of you before you jump out over the trench and into the face of the enemy are the words that Paul just said. Make sure you guys have everything you need before you jump out of this trench into the fray. I think that's a good way, actually, to think about what Paul's saying, rather than the churchy way that we've sort of translated all this stuff. So so let's just slow down a little bit and take a closer look at exactly what Paul is saying here. He first says, I think the first thing to point out is that our real strength is inside Jesus. It's not, not inside us. He says at the very beginning of this little stretch, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So I think the quick default way that we typically translate this when we read this is, I got to be strong, and I got to have power. But we don't recognize what Paul's saying is, 
I'm not talking about you right now. He's saying to be strong in the Lord's strength and in the Lord's power. It's not ours. The strength and power come from Him. So the second thing I think that we see here is that, likewise, the armor we need is His armor. It's not ours. So when He says, put on the armor, remember what He's saying is, put on all of God's armor, so that, and then after the so that comes why we're going to need it. But again, this isn't our armor. It's God's armor. And so if we don't have God's armor, we have nothing. We don't have armor at all. So it's so crucial to get the difference that Paul's talking about here, and it's different from how I think we typically translate this. Where is that strength focused? Paul spends a lot of time on what all this armor is for. And really what he's saying is our strength is focused on resistance. He's trying to say you're heading out into a fight, and you're going to need strength to resist the enemy who's trying to destroy you. So the strength is focused on resistance. And to use another military illustration, I'm not sure why they keep popping into my head here, but another way of saying this is that we're guerrilla fighters, and we're resisting an enemy occupation, and that's actually true. The earth began as a garden, as the home for God and his beloved, and it was invaded by sin. And now the ruler of this world is not the ruler who started. The world has been given over to the evil one, who's described by Jesus himself as the ruler of this world. And so we do live in enemy-occupied territory. And so I think it's best to see ourselves as guerrilla fighters who are not a massive organized army. We are uh, small little clumps fighting with all of our heart in the midst of this battle. And the things that we're putting on, the strengths of God, His armor, not ours, the things that Paul says that we put on are truth and righteousness and peace and faith and salvation. He's obviously speaking metaphorically here, but he says all of these things are the things that God has. He has the truth. It's his righteousness that we're accessing. It's his peace, not ours, that we need. It's his faith, his, his trusting belief in his character and personality and his capability that we need. It's our sense that our salvation, that our permanent home is with him, and therefore, what do we have to lose? But it's this last thing that in his list of things that we're putting on that I think is interesting. He says at the very end, to take up the sword of the Spirit— and then he says, which is the Word of God. So it's interesting here that we often, you know, even when I was a kid, I had a, a cover for my Bible that had a big sword on it, because the way that we thought about this passage was always that the Bible, the physical Bible, the printed Word, is our sword. But actually, the Word of God is Jesus, and the Bible is a written expression of the lead-up to the Messiah, the Messiah himself, and then what happened when the Messiah then inhabited the people of God as individual, quote-unquote, temples, when the Spirit of Jesus came to reside in each of us, what happens then after that? So the Word of God is really Jesus, and so Paul is really saying here, take up Jesus, take him up as you go out into this, take up his strength, his truth, his reality. So, And then the last part of this, the very end, he talks about praying in the Spirit at all times on every occasion, and this injunction to stay alert and be persistent. 
in how we pray for others around the world, this whole idea of staying alert is a theme that comes up over and over again. Don't fall asleep. Don't be lulled. Pray, be alert, persist in life. So that's a bit of an on-ramp into what the strength looks like and where it comes from. But now let's shift gears into how Jesus describes that strength, how he lives in it, and how he increases it in others. So I thought what would be interesting, I just kind of took a survey through the New Testament um, and tried to stop at the places that I thought were interesting to stop at relative to strength, both in what how Jesus modeled it and how he helped others to grow in it, but also others throughout the New Testament who were trying to understand how do you grow in strength as well. So the first place is in Luke chapter 6. I've written kind of a little umbrella, or little topical umbrellas over each one of these to try to sort of extract and condense what I think is the main point for each of these. So in Luke chapter 6, the one I've written for this is listening to the truth means actually following it. We don't just hear the truth and say we've listened to it. We have to follow the truth to truly say we've listened to it. So let me read you a little section here of Jesus talking in Luke chapter 6, verses 48 and 49. If you're not driving and you want to turn to Luke 6, 48 and 49, please do that. Here's what Jesus says, and in my Jesus-centered Bible, this little section is, is subtitled, Building on a Solid Foundation. So let's listen to Jesus here. So why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? I will show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching, and then follows it. It's like a person building a house who digs deep and lays the foundation on solid rock. And when the floodwaters rise and break against that house, it stands firm because it's well built. But anyone who hears and doesn't obey is like a person who builds a house right on the ground without a foundation. When the floods sweep down against that house, it will collapse into a heap of ruins. So I think the things to point out here that are interesting are that the truth, listening to the truth doesn't really matter until you do it, until you act on it. That's when it becomes true listening. So listening in the way that we typically translate it is a passive activity, and Jesus is actually saying, oh no, listening is the most active thing you can do, because I'll know you've listened when I see you doing the things that you say you've listened to. So well-built and a strong foundation is wholly dependent on whether we're living out what we have heard or experienced in him. And if we're not living it out, we are much more like building a house on the on the raw dirt. It doesn't have a strong foundation. It still looks like a solid house from the outside, but what betrays its foundation is when the storm comes and it just can't stand against it. So that's really actually Jesus is saying the true test of strength is when hard things happen, when the storm comes and it blows hard against you. And he's not being judgmental here, he's just trying to point out that if the foundation you built your house on is strong, it's like stone granite, then you have a very good chance of weathering the storm that comes your way, but it's just common sense. If you haven't built your house on a strong foundation, it's not going to have the anchor it needs to stay up under the pressure of that storm. So I was thinking about what it means then to actually follow the truth and therefore prove that I've listened. So in our group of about 20 young people, 
we have kids that have backstories and anchoring stories that we have to discover along the way, like everyone else. We don't know what their all of their home life is like. We don't know what's happened to them in their, their life. We don't know the hurts and pains and disappointments and also the some of their joys. We don't know all of the things that have poured into their soul to make them who they are. And so our intention in the group is to follow out the mission of Jesus, which is to set captives free. So if we're going to take that seriously, if I'm going to say, I've listened to your truth, Jesus, that our mission in life is to set captives free, then the only way to prove that I've listened is that we live it out. So what does living out setting captives free look like in our little group? Well, we tried something a a couple of weeks ago that was risky, because setting captives free is risky. I'm reading a book called The Body Keeps the Score. I think I've mentioned that on the podcast a couple of times. It's written by an author named—let me find it again here. Oh, yeah, he's got kind of a funny name. It's Bessel van der Kolk, and he's an older man now, but he's the world's leading expert on trauma. He's a psychiatrist or a psychologist, I don't remember which, who has spent his entire career helping traumatized people, and he's learned so much along this journey. And the title of the book, The Body Keeps the Score, is— sort of him as an older man now looking back on everything he's learned and, re- and expressing what he thinks is profoundly true, which is people who have been traumatized hold on to that trauma inside of them for their whole lives until the story of their trauma finds resolution. And so his whole practice in helping traumatized people is to bring resolution to their trauma, and almost always that resolution comes through something physical— He's learned a host of physical practices that help the soul to release the trauma, to complete the cycle of that trauma. It's a, one of the most incredible books I've ever read. In fact, I have to read it slowly because there is so much packed onto each page that is so true. But on one of the pages, as I was reading the book, he reprints a photograph that he uses in therapy with traumatized children. And the photograph isn't kind of an old, scratchy photograph that he cut out of a magazine that was in his waiting room. And it's a father who's underneath a car in a garage, and the car's up on these jacks, and he's underneath the car, apparently working on the underside of the car. And his two little kids are standing nearby, and the little girl's holding a big wrench, and the little boy's just staring at him. The way that Bessel van der Kolk uses this in his practice is that he gives this to kids— and asks them to tell a story about what's happening in the picture. And he did this in a kind of a formal research project where he had a control group of young children who went to a difficult inner-city school, public school, so they lived in a difficult neighborhood. They'd seen a lot of violence in their neighborhood, and life wasn't easy for them. But none of those kids were in his practice to receive treatment for trauma. They were just random kids chosen from the inner city school. And then he had another group that were all children that had come or been brought to his office because they had experienced horrific trauma. Like, I think one of the little kids that was in that particular group had been the child of a prostitute who had been murdered and dismembered in front of this little girl. So imagine the trauma that this little girl came in with. So he gave this harmless-looking photograph to both groups and asked them to create a story about what was happening in it. And in the first group, public school kids, those kids often 
told stories that had some element of danger to them, but everything turned out okay in the end in their story, like the father would take the kids to go get ice cream or something. So even though there was a threat of danger in this scene, everything turned out okay in the end. The second group of traumatized kids told the most gruesome, gruesome stories around what was happening, that the little girl with the wrench was getting ready to beat her father to death with it, and their stories had blood and all kinds of horrific things in them, and the stories did not end well. They always ended in darkness. And he's telling the story in the book because he's essentially saying, when you're given a ambiguous situation and told to tell a story around it, the story you tell kind of dips the bucket down into your soul to get the details of that story. It's a sideways way of unearthing what is buried in the darkness. And uh, so we decided to, on one of our small group nights, in the context of what we were focusing on with Jesus setting captives free, we decided to use this photograph. And I asked kids to write a story and then tell that story to their partner. When we the whole group got back together, I asked for some samples, some examples of the stories they told. And we learned through this process that uh, several of the kids in this group clearly had experienced some kind of trauma in their life. And my wife and I engaged these kids afterwards. And when everything was all done, one of the things my wife asked me was, wow, do you really think we should be doing this? <laughs> like, we really, this thing that we did tonight unearthed some really big things out of the dark caves that these kids have in their lives. And now it's out in the light. And now things may change forever for these kids if the next step they take is to explore where the trauma came from. And and I looked at her. It's a real question. It's an honest question, because what happened in this situation was big. But the truth is, if my wife and I have listened to Jesus, who said, I've come to set captives free, and when you're in me, you get the family business, you also, your mission in life is to set captives free— if we've truly listened to him, then we'll be doing that with people. And so I just said to my wife, how can we do anything different but to, in reality, do the best we can to set the stage for uh, kids who need to be set free from a trauma that could follow them their whole life? How could we not try to surface those things in the safe context of our group and then get those kids connected to the help that they need? How can we not do that? We can't shy away from living out the truth. That is what it means to listen. So the second thing here, and we're going to look at Luke chapter 21 for this one, uh, the little topic umbrella I put over this one is, be awake, awake, awake to reality. <laughs> be awake, awake, awake to reality. So let me just read you this, this little section from Luke 21. The uh, title over this section is, Jesus Speaks About the Future. I think this is a fascinating thing. It, so Jesus is headed toward the cross. He knows he's physically going away, but he's really not going away. There's going to be a, a morphing of his presence pre and post cross and resurrection, but he's trying to prepare his disciples for a radical change in his presence in their lives. And he's excited about this because he knows his spirit is going to find its temple in each one of them now, and that the closeness of their relationship is going to be hugely magnified in the near future. But he knows, on the other hand, from a human point of view, they're, they're just going to experience him being gone, and uh, the sorrow of that and the fear of that. So 
Uh, here's how Jesus is preparing them to walk strongly into this future. So let's listen. It starts, uh, Luke 21 starts in verse 5. We're going to read 5 to 18, and then we're going to skip over a little portion and read 34 to 36 at the end. So here we go. And some of his disciples began talking about the majestic stonework of the temple and the memorial decorations on the walls. And Jesus said, and this is sly Jesus, <laughs> well, the time's coming when all these things will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. And think about that. It's like somebody coming to you and saying, you introducing somebody to your house and saying, we just love our house and the, you know, the, we love all the windows in our house and we love the spaces in our house. And then that friend saying, you know, there's a tornado coming. It's going to destroy all this. It's, it's going to absolutely shatter this entire place. There'll be nothing left. What an ominous thing he says to his disciples. And so, of course, they say, teacher, they asked, when will all this happen? What sign will show us that these things are about to take place? He's like, they're like saying, how will we know when this is about to happen? Because this is going to be traumatic. We need a little advance warning. And Jesus replies, don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name claiming I'm the Messiah and saying, the time has come, but don't believe them. And when you hear of wars and insurrections, don't panic. Yes, these things must take place first, but the end won't follow immediately. And then he added, Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes, and there will be famines and plagues in many lands, and there will be terrifying things and great miraculous signs from heaven. But before all this occurs, there will be a time of great persecution. You will be dragged into synagogues and prisons, and you will stand trial before kings and governors, because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. So don't worry in advance about how to answer the charges against you, for I will give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to reply or refute you. Even those closest to you, your parents and brothers and relatives and friends, they're going to betray you. They will even kill some of you, and everyone will hate you because you're my followers. But listen, not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will win your souls." And then a little gap to the end here. Watch out. Don't let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness and by the worries of this life. Don't let that day catch you unaware like a trap, for that day will come upon everyone living on the earth. Keep alert at all times and pray that you might be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. What an extraordinary section here to put yourself in the place of these disciples with your Jesus who you love saying these things to you, that these things are certainly going to happen to you. So this kind of sobering pre-fight uh, pep talk, it's kind of the most bizarre pep talk you can imagine because Jesus is just painting a very difficult picture of the reality that's about to hit them. So I go back to that whole metaphor that we're guerrilla fighters, and, and that's the truth about us. It's not a rhetorical truth. This is actually how Jesus sees us and how he wants us to think, that we're guerrilla fighters in an enemy-occupied territory. So the first thing he says here is, make sure that you know me so that you'll know who's false. Make sure that you know the truth so that you'll know the lie when it comes, because it's very important. Remember, he said, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow, they follow me. So he's basically saying, you need to know me so well 
that when fake shepherds come and they yell over the fence, that you don't even turn your head. You know me so well that 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 doesn't even capture your attention. The only voice that you respond to is mine. And he's urging them to know the depths of his voice so that they won't be uh, led astray. So I had something happen this week where a a pastor who was using part of a curriculum that I wrote and created called in to say that he had a problem with one of the one of the uh, lessons that I'd created, and it was really a lesson uh, built around a couple of scenes from the film Les Miserables, not the musical version, the the Liam Neeson, Uma Thurman version from, I don't know, 15, maybe even 20 years ago now. And I'm, this is a powerful story. Les Miserables is a powerful story of a, a man named Jean Valjean who's imprisoned for many years for a minor offense, and he's finally released but can't find a job because he's marked as a criminal, and uh, he he ends up being given a, a gift of great grace by a follower of Jesus who he brutalizes to try to steal from him to have some money that he can start a new life with. And this bishop, who is a, a lover of Jesus, uh, decides not to send him to prison for this, but actually takes the blow and offers him the very things he stole, he offers them freely to him. And this begins a new path for Jean Valjean, and because he's industrious and smart, he builds a business and eventually becomes a mayor. And in the story, a woman who has had a baby out of wedlock is trying to hang on to her job because her job is the only thing that stands between her and a horrible, dark turn to her life. But she gets let go from the business that she is working at under false pretenses. And because of that, she's no longer able to care for her daughter, and she has to enter prostitution just to survive. And in the end, this woman, Fantine, is brutalized by people and raped and treated horribly. And she blames it all on Jean Valjean because she falsely believes he's the one behind her losing her job. And so these are the scenes that I use in this lesson. And the reason why is that in the end, Jean Valjean invites Fantine into his home when she's incredibly sick and dying. And he cares for her in a tender way, in a non-sexual way. He sacrifices his life to try to restore her to health. And she is loved by him like she has never been loved in her entire life. And it transforms her. And she does end up dying. She succumbs to her illness. But before that happens, she experiences for the weeks that she's in his home a kind of love, a kind of pursuit that she's never experienced before. So obviously, these scenes that I've used in the lesson, they don't include the more graphic ones from the film, but they do surround Fantine's life and how she is rescued and how she's pursued by this this good man who is not in it for something he can get out of it. He's in it to restore and redeem her. And I use this scene to try to unlock the heart of God, the heart of Jesus. Well, this pastor didn't want to use this lesson because he felt like it was too too profane to use a scene from this film where the character has been brutalized and raped, even though we don't show that scene. And it just was very, very disturbing to him. And so the my answer to him is this scene accurately, I think, depicts the sort of intimacy and reality of Jesus' pursuit of us, that it's not the shallow version 
that we often hear about growing up in the church. It's this sort of intentionality, this sort of intimacy. So the purpose of having kids watch these scenes and try to make some metaphorical connections to the pursuit of Jesus in our life is to try to unveil the true heart of Jesus, to have a more accurate experience and understanding of his passionate, pursuing heart. And this pastor basically said, we've been using your curriculum for a long time, but if you don't give me a good answer for this, we might stop using it, and I'm thinking inside I don't have a good answer for it. This is a vulnerable, penetrating way to come and embrace the true heart of Jesus. And so what Jesus is saying here is, know me at the depths of my heart. And part of our mission in life is to do just that, to see Jesus through an unvarnished lens, to get close enough to smell him, to not keep him at arm's length, to not be afraid of intimacy with him, to go to places that could upend the churchy ways that we've come to see him, to see him with clear eyes and to allow him to show us what he's like instead of trying to visit our own limitations onto him. And so, and the other thing that, uh, there's a few more things that he says in here that I think are fascinating and worth slowing down to look at. Again, he repeats himself that, you know, you're going to enter a a time of great persecution, but this is going to be your opportunity to tell them about me. So when we're under duress, the strength that we need the strength of our experience, our direct experience of Jesus, out of that place of persecution and fear that we're resting ourselves is on our knowledge and experience of the heart of Jesus. So he's encouraging us to guard our boundaries against the incursion of anxiety and fear. He's saying, don't become one with your anxiety. So I've mentioned before on the podcast, one of my favorite books is Edwin Friedman's Failure of Nerve, and the whole book is about what it looks like to not lose sense of your boundaries and join the anxiety that's inflicting you. That's what the book's about. Friedman calls it uh, living out of your non-anxious presence. And what that really means is that you you, uh, uh, don't blur your boundaries between the thing that is making you afraid and and the identity that you hold in Jesus. So Jesus is really saying uh, here, you're going to be scared, uh, no doubt about it, But in the midst of that fear, attach yourself to me. Come back over and over to me. Depend upon me. Um, And when you depend upon me, recognize that even if others betray you, and they will, I will not betray you. I will fight for you. I love that line um, in uh, Last of the Mohicans uh, uh, when Hawkeye is uh, having to leave Korah behind. Um, and she's certainly going to face um, a horrific uh, experience because there are enemies coming. And he is, and Hawkeye is not able to fight them all off. He's going to have to allow her to be captured so he can return and try to rescue her. But a direct frontal fight with the enemy that's coming is, is going to end in his death. So her only hope is if he can survive. And... Uh, but as he's leaving Korah in this dark cave, knowing this horror is about to come down on her, his his uh, passionate uh, response to her is he looks her in the eye and he says, no matter what happens, stay alive. I will come for you. I will fight for you. And then he leaves. 
And I think it's such a fantastic picture of what Jesus is also trying to communicate to his disciples here. Horrible things are about to happen to you, but I'm looking you in the eye right now. I will fight for you. I am not abandoning you. I will rescue you. I am doing what I have to do now to rescue you. So Jesus is telling them in the most fervent way he can, don't let your circumstances dictate what you think about what I'm doing, because I intend to rescue you. I intend to fight for you. And then at the very end, he says, and don't get dulled or lulled into thinking that everything's okay. Be awake and alert. Let's now look at our last one. This one I've titled, Our Strength is in Our Stand. Our Strength is in Our Stand. So there's a couple of places in Thessalonians, in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, and in Peter's first letter, and in Paul's first and second letters to the Corinthians, where this whole phrase, stand, is peppered with it. So in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous and strong. And in 2 Corinthians, he repeats some of the same phrasing. He, he says, it's God who enables us, along with you, to stand firm for Christ. So, and if we get then to 2 Thessalonians, here's a little section that the subtitle is, Believers Should Stand Firm. You're getting the same message from Paul over and over again. Let's read this little section. It's from 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 17, and he says, As for us, we can't help but thank God for you, dear brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. We are always thankful that God chose you to be among the first to experience salvation, the salvation that came through the Spirit who makes you holy and through your belief in the truth. He called you to salvation when we told you the good news. Now you can share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And with all these things in mind, dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Keep a strong grip on the teaching we passed on to you, both in person and by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal comfort and a wonderful hope, comfort you and strengthen you in every good thing you do and say. And then finally, this letter from Peter in 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10, think about these same words that are being repeated over and over again by Jesus and Paul and Peter. There's a common theme here, and here Peter says, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. In his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you've suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you. He will place you on a firm foundation. So our strength is in our stand, and our stand, it comes when we plant our feet, ready for whatever is about to hit us, ready for the tsunami to try to wash over us. And when we're planting our feet, the most important thing is what we're standing on. If we're not standing on something solid, we're going to be knocked over. That's as simple as it gets. So my comparison to this is if you're standing on principles and recipes and formulas, you're going to topple over. That is not a firm foundation. Principles and ideas and recipes are not a granite foundation. They're a sandy, shifting foundation, and you will be knocked off your perch if that's what you're basing your life on. But if you're standing on the heart of Jesus, you're not going to topple. I was... uh, talking with one of the girls in our small group to this last week's uh, meeting where we were part of the meeting time. We were talking about fear, and we were it was the very day that the school shooting at the STEM school happened about 10 minutes away from where we live. And so these kids were obviously thinking about all of these issues, and 
and thinking about what it means to be a believer at their school in the midst of this, when there's so many heightened emotions. And one of the girls in our group asked to talk to me afterward, and her question was, what do I do about all of the pushback I get at school and all the mocking I hear about Christians and how uncool it is to be a follower of Jesus and all of the messages I get, not just from other students, but even teachers sometimes, and that just sort of the pushback that I'm getting all the time. And I thought about here what Paul is trying to say about what it means to stand firm. And what I said to her was, well, one thing you can't do is stand on your arguments. If what you're doing is trying to out-argue the other students and your teachers so that you feel like you're standing firm, you're going to be toppled over if that's what you're trying to do. The, th- the place you need to stand is on the heart of Jesus, and that's why we focus on the heart of Jesus in this group. I want you, in the midst of being unsure about your circumstances and even unsure about yourself, I want you to be as sure as you can be about the heart of Jesus, because in the midst of that situation, that's the foundation that will allow you to not be toppled over when others push against you. If you know his heart, there's something unshakable about that. So, and it's so unshakable, I said to her, that if you're standing on the heart of Jesus and not the arguments on his behalf, then you're free to ask questions of the people who are pushing back and even mocking you. Pursue them with your own curiosity. That's what it means to love your enemies. And Jesus said he would enable us to do that. And I think the shrewdest way to love your enemies in a situation where they're pushing back against you is to ask more questions of them. How did you come to that belief? Why have you discounted this? Have you had personal experience that has uh, been hurtful or painful? To pursue their story with curiosity is a way to diffuse their mocking approach to you even. So we talked about that for a little bit, and when she left, I think she, what she told me, she had a clearer vision of what she needed to do as she walked back into her school that next day. So our strength in that sense is tied to clarity. What are you clear about? What are you determined about? And what are you ready to fight for? Let me say those three things again. What are you clear about? What are you determined about? And what are you ready to fight for? Those three things make up, I think, the strength that you have to give. When you are clear about the heart of Jesus, when you are determined in your relationship with him to carry out his mission because his heart's now your heart, and you're determined to set captives free. And are you ready to fight? Are you awake and alert and ready to lean? Are your feet on the foundation of his heart? And are you ready for what's coming? Because Jesus said it's coming. Are you not lulled into a passivity, but are you ready for the fight, whatever it is? These things all feed into our strength as people. And when these things feed into our strength, Our strength is a gift to those people around us. Our strength is a source of light and truth and redemption and encouragement in their life. And it's a world right now that is in desperate need of that. Uh, The world needs our strength. And the beautiful truth here is that we don't have anything to give apart from him. But we have everything to give when we're embedded in him. All right, gang, thanks for listening today. Remember, you can find out more on painridiculousattentiontojesus.com. You're looking for Season 4, Episode 18. And by the way, in late June, I think it's June 26th, my next book called The God Who Fights For You will be released. 
It's actually an edited and updated version of a book I wrote 10 years ago called Sifted. And it is a book about what it means to find your strength, but it comes with a focus on what Jesus said to Peter at the Last Supper, that Satan had demanded to sift Peter like wheat, and then Jesus was tacitly giving his permission for that to happen. But he promised Peter that he was going to pray for him, and that his faith wouldn't fail in the midst of this tremendous test, and that when he returned, he would strengthen his brothers. So really what Jesus is saying here is the whole point of this, Peter, of this terrible thing that's about to happen to you, is that your strength would be increased to such an extent that you strengthen not just your brothers standing in this room, but you form a foundation for the church to begin. And so it's really a journey towards strength that, uh, that I explore in this book through the portal of what it feels like to be sifted. So that book comes out June 26th. It's called The God Who Fights For You. So we'll talk a little bit more about that as it gets closer to the time. So again, this is a Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll talk again next time. 